This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And this is Stephanie. And welcome to Borrowing Brilliance, a new segment of Dragon Mind. In this segment, we borrow brilliance from some of the world's most insightful minds using their ideas to better ourselves as game masters, players, and people. In today's episode, Stephanie and I revisit the seven baby steps to masterful game mastering with fresh experiences and insights to confirm and refine our understanding of their value. If you have any insights or questions, be sure to head over to the Darkmore Podcast community Discord and let us know in the proper channels, or send us an email at dragonmindpodcast at gmail.com. To support this podcast, make sure to drop a review in your podcasting app of choice to let us know your favorite thing about Dragonmind. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to another Barring Brilliance episode. John and I are here and super excited to continue the conversation about, uh, well, my my passion is obviously momentum learning systems, since that's my, my business and my life's work, uh, but also talking about leadership and how to make your game at the table be an awesome experience for both you as the DM and your players by utilizing the idea of creating loops and spiraling up and even sometimes down as appropriate. Um, or maybe we'll say instead of spiraling down, spiraling up and sometimes outwards, sometimes inwards, but constantly elevating the experience um, and creating more synergy at the table. So in our last to Borrowing Brilliance episodes, uh, we brought on Ken, uh, who's Stephanie's partner with their consulting company, Momentum Learning Systems, uh, to talk about five-level leadership and the Momentum Learning Systems formula to create learning loops and spirals. And just a quick note about Momentum Learning Systems and the way we've been talking about it. What's important to us in any work that we do is that our lives feel integrated with the contributions we're making through the work that we do. So as we're talking about momentum learning systems, it's not about it being a pitch. It's, this is something that evolved over years of teaching the martial arts and teaching a lot of different topics and working with teachers and business owners in a lot of different capacities. So really we're talking about it because momentum learning systems is the thing that integrates all of the stuff that we work on from the personal growth and development to helping train leaders and teachers and better communicators. Um, so if I, I hope it doesn't feel like we're over plugging it, that's not the point. It's just kind of the, it's the center of gravity for all of the integrated work that we do. And that extends to Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons is, is a much a part of my identity and my contribution and interaction with the world as anything else that I do. Um, and I've had some interesting conversations with people lately about life integration. Um, but I, I just wanted to, to mention that as we go into it, we're not trying to like overhype MLS. So one of the things we talked about, Ken, on his first of the pair of episodes was five-level leadership, 
which was about recognizing the personal skills that a leader and by extension, a game master, because like you've mentioned, Stephanie, a game master is really the leader of their table, whether they like it or not. Um, these are the skills that one needs to cultivate in order to be effective at leading. So in other words, it all starts with you. The five levels stack on each other, which should sound similar to our first visit of the seven baby steps, and cannot be skipped. Snags in the higher levels are indicators that there's work to be done in the lower levels. So for example, one of the things we were talking about with five level leadership was level three, which is learning how to be an effective communicator. And part of being an effective communicator is having really strong skills at being a listener, which was level one. So if you're skipping the step of being a good listener, it's impossible to be an effective communicator. Just like the seven baby steps, there's there's a reason I came up with the seven baby steps the way I have, because again, you guys have been developing five level leadership and momentum learning system for decades now. In Loops and Spirals, which was the second of the two episodes, we discussed the learner-centered momentum learning systems formula for content organization. I do think momentum learning systems, the spirit of it and the center of gravity, like you mentioned, is bigger than just this formula. But the formula is a concrete way to think about it so that you can start implementing it and playing with it uh, yourself. The formula organizes a learning experience into a closed loop, which we will talk about in a little bit, so that it's easier to reflect upon for both the teacher and learner, eventually building and gaining momentum, hence the name Momentum Learning Systems, to create a spiral. Now, one thing I did want to mention, uh, we were talking with Ken after we had paused recording, and he was just mentioning, you know, it's also good to mention that like you said, Stephanie, sometimes you spiral down and that's perfectly normal as part of the spiraling up process. Yeah, that's called being human. Exactly. And one of the examples, we'll use a martial arts example because that's our background, that we talk about is with sparring where you're in real time, almost kind of playing tag with strikes and kicks. It's not as serious and you're not delivering as much power as your normally trained martial arts. But a lot of times what happens when someone gets pretty good at sparring is they start to learn a new technique, especially in our martial arts school. There's this footwork that Ken has been training all of the instructors to that we're imparting on the students. And one of the things a lot of the students have noticed is I'm trying this footwork that you say is amazing, but I keep getting scored on and I, it's not working out for me. And it's a, a great example of how there's a temporary spiral down where you start getting scored on more and you start performing less well because you're learning something new. But once you learn that new thing and you have it as a tool in your toolbox, you start to spiral higher than if you hadn't spent the time spiraling down at all. And I just think that's important to remember because I know that in my experience, most GMs do tend to be pretty reflective. They The reason why they're wanting to GM in the first place is to share a story. And although sometimes I get a little heavy about the ego getting involved in it, a lot of times they do recognize when they've made a mistake or something. And a lot of times it feels like my game is this constant downward spiral. 
But even just recognizing that can help open the possibilities to help the game spiral up higher than if it hadn't expi- uh, experienced that downward spiral to begin with. I talk about that type of analogy with my son all the time. So obviously he's enmeshed with a lot of high performers. And sometimes that can be a lot for a 10 year old. And it has definitely been a lot over the years for younger than a 10 year old. So one of the things that I try to keep reminding him of is those phases of developing your skill at sparring. Um, You could probably make an analogy with a lot of other things. But I feel like, you know, we know sparring and and it, it is kind of a Uh, it makes a really pretty analogy of there's this, you kind of start out just throwing a lot of things in a lot of directions. Uh, If you ever watched four-year-old spar, even on the internet, it's hilarious. They're either six feet away from each other, just flying around, or they're way too close to each other, just flying arms and legs around. Um, And then there gets to be this point where you're starting to see the openings. You're starting to see where the opportunities are, but you're not quick enough yet to react or your head is still too much in it. So you see the opening, but it's gone before you have the opportunity to do something about it. But the you can't get to the step where you're taking advantage of those opportunities until you recognize that the gap is there, that the opening is there. So if you are recognizing the gap, you are you are on your way. That's a win. That's a part of the process to to getting to the point where you can be masterful in the situation. So if you're recognizing, you know, in in hindsight, where the session started to evolve, or excuse me, devolve and go off course, if you're seeing that and reflecting on it, that's going to help you prepare for the next time that situation comes up. So don't get frustrated with yourself that you're missing the opportunity that can have an impact on on moving the situation in a positive direction. That's a step in the chain to to move towards progress. So celebrate that success and then keep looking forwards to trying to take that opening when it comes a little bit more skillfully each time. Yeah. And one thing that as I was listening to you, it kind of flashed was sometimes these spirals also happen in the micro like you mentioned during the loops and spirals episodes momentum learning systems occurs in both the macro and the micro so there's the micro lesson of you can have a momentum learning systems loop within like five minutes in a 45 minutes martial arts class you could also have the macro loop of taking a student from white belt to black belt or white belt to mastery and so i did want to bring up because it just happened this past sunday that I experienced this upward and downward spiral even within a single D&D session. So I had started a session with just two characters talking to each other, which I usually don't do. Usually what I do is I try to get that out of the way beforehand so that all four players can engage at the beginning of a session. The way the timing worked out, it just didn't happen. And what I recognized was that We almost started off the session with a bit of a downward spiral because only two players were basically allowed to engage. The other two players weren't there. And then it started to drag on just a little too long. So that's when I made sure to kind of cut it just to make sure that the other two players would have a chance to enter the scene and then also start to play. Sometimes when you get sensitive to it, you can even start to figure out 
the downward spirals and then the upward spirals within a single session. And I will say, even though it felt like a downward spiral, it gave some interesting context for the other players, even though their characters weren't involved in the conversation. The learning opportunity and what it means to be a leader is when those things happen, you say, here's what I recognized. Here's where I didn't do as well as I could have. And here's what I'm going to do in the future to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's what being a level five leader is. It's not doing it perfect every time because humans are humans and stuff's going to get messed up. So it's how you respond to the challenges when they come and how you communicate taking ownership of making sure that that is less likely to happen in the future. To move on to our revisit of the seven baby steps. I think it's very on theme that we're revisiting this because we first talked about it maybe a year or more ago. So since then, first of all, we've gotten new listeners, which is awesome. Welcome. So if you haven't gone back and heard that first episode, uh, I'm not even sure if you're going to have to, because as with everything, um, this is that integration piece where who we are is who we are everywhere. Uh, We are continuing to spiral up this concept. And by we, I mean, John, I'm here supporting, but John is really the D&D mastermind. I'm just like the coach on the side, like poking you with ideas and being like, hey, you should do this, which is how the seven baby steps came about because Cal Newport on his podcast was talking about his seven baby steps to like living a deep life or something like that. I can't even remember because someone asked Cal Newport about, you know, if he had to create the seven baby steps of his work, like Dave Ramsey, who's a financial guy has the seven baby steps of like financial freedom. So it's kind of this chain of barring brilliance, which is the theme of these episodes is looking around at the world around you, finding cool ideas, and then continue to spiral them up because learning is never done. Um, I don't know. I always think like a shark. If you stop moving, you die. (laughs) Yeah. So our original frame for the seven baby steps, like where I was coming from was to be blunt. It was it came from a frustration from watching a lot of GMs almost get it right and then self-sabotage their game by trying to go too big too fast. There's an example a lot of you listening who are enmeshed in the D&D community can probably relate to. It could be like you watch something like Critical Role and you're amazed by the level of role playing and funny voices and plot development and catharsis that the players are experiencing. And you say, I want to do that without taking into account the fact that Matt Mercer has been DMing since he was 12. So it's been decades of experience. All of them are professional improv and voice actors. So they have, again, decades of formal training and professional work experience that allows them to create such a strong product. Basically, when a GM is telling me they're trying to recreate Critical Role, what they're trying to say is, I can take decades of hard work and do that right off the bat without any sort of experience. And the original Baby Steps was really just a way of showing, well, this is the hard work that you can do in order to reach that same level of satisfaction for your game. I I would argue that it does not necessarily have to be hard work. I think it may take a little bit of 
patience, which we're going to talk about, but it's not necessarily hard work. It's actually letting it be easy in the beginning so you can start to build momentum, like keep it simple in the beginning so you can build momentum. And then when you dive into the more complex parts of it, the harder part of it of creating a whole world and trying to keep a yearly, like a multi-year campaign going, you've, you've built up to that. You've learned things. I will debate that because yeah, I haven't had a GM really be able to restrain themselves enough to show how strong this formula can be. The seven baby steps are about giving yourself permission to allow the work to be easy. And it is extremely difficult to restrain all of your creative ideas so that they can be organized in a digestible way. So it's not hard work in the sense that it takes a lot of active effort in order to make the game happen, but it does take a lot of hard work to be patient with yourself as evidenced by a lot of my experiences with GMs that try to go too big too fast. Yeah, we're definitely saying the same thing. There is there is a level of uh what maybe willpower and um <laughs> you know and and kind of focus that is required and that's where the hard work comes in. I just wanted to to emphasize the fact that like baby step 1 is really easy. If you just if you if you focus on learning the lesson that it's teaching you, the actual work to set up those that first session should be a whole lot easier than setting up a multi-year campaign campaign. So that you're doing easy DM work while you're doing some potentially difficult self-work to focus on, you know, reflecting and you're, you're focusing on you first as the point of impact and then expanding outwards into the content of what you're providing your table. Exactly. Now, because we've talked about the baby steps, we'll still review them because like you said, we've refined them, changed some of the language around, but Really, besides just being a new GM wanting some direction or maybe needing some structure to learn off of, uh, there are some additional frames we're going to explore, which are diagnosing the session structure that will be the best fit for a given group, which is not going to be the best fit for every group. There are lots of players individuals that for whatever reason a multi-year ongoing campaign is inappropriate and as much as they may want that they may not be able to commit scheduling wise to making that happen um it's also a great formula to use as an experienced gm to try to figure out again what's going to be the most appropriate structure but also, again, how to organize your content in a way that will be digestible to your players. So you're not pulling out too many details too fast so that they can't remember who any of the characters or the plot are. So overall, the biggest reason to revisit the seven baby steps is somewhere along the line, it really became crystal clear that to me, Beyond the storytelling and the world building and the flowery language and all the things most people think of when they think of like a really strong D&D session, it all comes down to timing. So how much real world time is being spent on things and how that affects the real world experience 
of the players behind the characters. So if you take the same story and you can tell it in, say, five minutes, right? Expanding that story to two hours is not going to make it a better story and will actually make it much more difficult for the players to enjoy. And I find that that tends to be what happens at a lot of tables. So learning how to trim your game so that the real world time is being spent efficiently, I think is an under-prioritized skill that isn't talked about as much in the broader like uh, TTRPG community. Usually the things that get emphasized are world building, immersion techniques, homebrew rules. None of that matters if the game is taking so long that your players aren't enjoying it. I think we are ready to dive into them. So the heaviest emphasis based on the conversations we've had leading up to recording this is going to be on the first two steps. Um, and we're going to talk about how relevant and important they are to experience DMs when they're starting a new game, especially a new table with new people. But first, we want to go through the seven baby steps uh, from a first time DMs perspective. Uh, again, especially those first two. And I thought it might be interesting to share what I've learned playing with implementing those first two steps as a DM. Yeah. So when we first did the seven baby steps, they were very structural in language. So step one used to be run a one shot. And then step two used to be uh, run a three to four session adventure. I've changed step one to be just close the loop. So like we talk about with a learning loop and momentum learning systems, within that first session, you should have you should be able to have told a complete story with a beginning, middle, and end, as opposed to pausing in the middle and waiting to pick it up next time. Yeah. So after, well, I mean, it's been, we said it's been a while, um, but I've been doing Gears long enough. And like we've talked about, if you, if you really run a campaign well, I guess if you don't run it well too, but hopefully what happens is your players feel inspired to start DMing themselves too. So for baby step one, I used Dragons of Icefire Peak from the Essentials Kit, and I played with Ken and also Leo. So I ran a session for them for the first two steps. I ended up using Dragons of Icefire Peak, and then the, the other one that uh, we also happened to have uh, was the starter kit, which has Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. So the first loop just practicing closing the loop Icefire peak felt like it had a lot of like kind of disconnected missions especially in the beginning so in terms of practicing closing a loop that one that one was i think set up the best um and then Stormwreck isle was good for baby step number two but i like Stormwreck isle a whole lot more uh, I think I think Stormwreck Isle, you know, especially if we're talking new DMs, these are from the Essentials Kit and the Starters Kit. So Stormwreck Isle was definitely more fun because I felt more inspired uh, creatively because there was more NPC development and it was a little bit smaller of a geographical area. 
um, which is what we talk about for the first step and the, and the second step. Um, but then uh, I Spire Peak was like, hey, you're in a town and there's a mission board and just pick one, you know? So it was very, it was incredibly closed loop. So I had Jeff the Killer, who was a human fighter. That was obviously Leo. And then I had Stumble, uh, who was a halfling wizard. And the most important thing that I did starting out, this was back in February that I actually started doing this process. So the the most important thing that I did was pre-framed the session from the perspective of what my goals were, which we have talked about with Gearis. So I let them know that number one, I learn best by doing. So there's going to be spots where I get a little lost or I have to read the book because even just the way my brain works, like I could read the thing seven times, but until I, until I start interacting with it, especially with other people involved, uh, I'm going to process it differently. Um, I did uh, emphasize that it was all about practice and play. I told them that we were starting with the raw in the essentials kit, which is very limited. There's a, a like a skinny little rule book that we started with. It limits the classes you can pick. Um, I do wish that I had, I don't remember if the starter kit or the, excuse me, the essentials kit uses pre-made characters. Um, I did that for the first session of Stormwreck Isle and I kind of wish I had done that for, uh, this very first session because when you're DMing for the first time, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but all of a sudden, like when you have to teach information, your brain accesses it differently than when you're learning or just using the information yourself. So my wizard ended up with Eldritch Blast and Fog Cloud because I wasn't paying attention and my player wasn't super experienced. So, you know, and it wasn't until the end of the session that I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> like wizards can't do Eldritch Blast. So it, it, it really emphasized how like starting with a limited number of options is really helpful because there's just so many moving parts. And if you've never done it before, you, you're going to be blindsided by something. So limit the amount of things that you can be blindsided by and let the let things reveal themselves. First of all, super proud of you because I know you've been kicking around the idea of trying to DM yourself for a little while. So, it, and it takes a lot of bravery actually just to make the decision that you're actually going to be the leader of the table, even if it's a small table with just Ken and Leo. And, you know, <laughs> we did a borrowing brilliance on our experience playing Pathfinder 2nd Edition, the beginner box. And I came up with the same thing. You know, Pathfinder was a completely new system. One of the things I wanted to test was the character creation process because that was one of the big selling points of the system is how customizable characters are. And afterwards, I really should have just had the pre-made character sheets and just handed them to players because even on the pre-made character sheets, what I didn't realize is there are even instructions of like how to play your character within the character sheet. So it would have taken a lot of burden off of me as the game master to run it. To give a little bit of context uh, to the essentials kit, when it was first coming out, uh, it was actually talked about by Chris Perkins who had designed the essentials kit. It was kind of meant to be an add-on to the green box starter set. So D&D has two starter sets, the 2014 one, which has Lost Mine of Fandelver, which I believe is actually the perfect starter adventure 
even more so than Stormwreck Isle. Uh, but the Essentials Kit takes place in the same region. So those closed loop adventures are meant to be side quests that you pick up for Fandelver or as kind of like an expansion set. So I agree with you. Having run Ice Spire Peak, uh, actually, you were at the table I ran it at years ago. Um, it is really awkward to be like, all right, you're in a tavern and there are missions and pick one. But for the first time out of the gate, especially knowing how like my nervous system was going to panic about stuff. And I, and I was also, you know, I was feeling nervous as much as I like talking and like sharing information and presenting information. I hate acting. Uh, I don't like role playing in front of people. So, uh, so it was definitely a challenge. So the very straightforward nature of this, where there were, there were really like barely any NPCs to develop, um, or, I mean, you could develop them, but it wasn't like Stormwreck Isle, you know, they describe each one of the characters at least a little bit, um, enough that you could, you can see that there's a thought, but behind this person where I didn't have like that same strong sense. Um, so it was very mechanical basically. So in terms of starting with raw, starting with making sure I understood the rules and the mechanics, and then also started to prepare for all of the little mechanical things that you don't necessarily think are hard when you're watching someone else do it, but like trying even just writing down initiative and stuff. I also am weird and feel pressure. Like if I'm making someone wait so I can make notes on something. So I, I don't know, maybe I just have hangups, but, um, but trying to like, keep my head wrapped around the initiative order. Uh, and then the other thing was I had two players did not do the sidekick thing. And then they went off and like fought a manticore in their first thing. And I first time the manticore hit, I was like, if I realized that if I let it do a multi-attack, I was going to TPK the two of them almost immediately. So right out of the gate, I had to start rebalancing because even though they that was a, a thing that they could go do, it was something that was said that was balanced. It was balanced for a, a party of four, and I had half that size. So I had to basically have the manticore's effects so that because my party was halved. So and it was, you know, we ended up I, I ended up getting to do three times doing that closed loop thing. So I basically, you know, it was it kind of built a little bit, but really the main thing that built was the little jokes that were coming out like there was a lot of shenanigans with burrowing chickens i don't know why it's because the people i played with are goobers um but that was an indicator that my players were being very supportive of my style and the choices and the goals that i had set in terms of like this isn't going to be in depth we're just going to have fun and i'm asking for a lot of patience so they made it fun for themselves by having this kind of like silly you know, imaginative stuff they were thinking about that was not important to the session. Uh, so, and, and it just, I, I felt very supported and we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and so I did feel after, after running three closed loop sessions, I started to feel like I was ready for a more cohesive story, you know? So I felt like I had done the work. I had figured out some little things like printing the map, <laughs> because drawing it was a pain in the butt. So I actually like printed a map. And then because I'm supported by wonderful people for Valentine, the people that know me uh, for Valentine's Day, I got a box of like 
tile things that you can put together. So so we use we have some D and D minifigures, but then we also use Lego minifigures to um to to do stuff. So I I really recognized how valuable it was to do that prep and like make sure you are ready with the map because just drawing it and especially again I panic when I feel like I'm under pressure and people are watching and waiting for me so I found for myself because remember a huge part of this is learning yourself the work that you're you may have the whole book memorized but the work that you're doing is recognizing where where your strengths are and where you need some extra support. So for me, I've just really recognized how like if I had it all set up in advance and I knew what was coming, that even if I was taking time, I didn't feel bad about it because it was like, oh, I have something prepared for you. Let me get it ready, you know, as opposed to being like, oh no, I'm scrambling, which then sets my nervous system off and then I can't even think. So yeah, so that was my experience with with step number one. Yeah, really that's the value of the first step is because what you described that like pressure is something every DM experiences. Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. But even when I'm running Gears, it's the same exact thing. When I'm like in roll 20 and getting the little initiative counter out and it's taking time for me to write down everyone's numbers, it's the same thing. You're constantly aware. How much time am I taking? Am I taking too long? And that can end up actually making everything slower. So part of the value of running a closed loop with a super simple story, like you said, is it allows you to discover what it's really like. That's what it's meant for. And when you're trying to both discover it and teach new players and then trying to build a world and trying to cultivate, it's it's way too much. So the idea is to make it as simple as possible so that you have the space to learn. When I talk about running very first sessions, you just beautifully captured the point that it does make it a lot easier on yourself if you're playing with players that have some experience. So if you've got players that don't know that Eldritch Blast isn't a warlock spell, because my guess is probably what happened is they looked at the arcane cards and just picked out the one that looked cool. Didn't see that it said warlock only at the bottom. I know because he's done it before, but (laughs) so, um, Then if you have someone that's a little more experienced, it makes it easier to focus on just you rather than also trying to teach others. The counterpoint that I would offer to that, depending on who you are and and who you have, I didn't want to feel insecure by playing with people out of the gate who I felt like knew 10 times more than me. That was intimidating. So I kind of intentionally started with the 10-year-old because I felt that it was a safe space where if I made a mistake, I wasn't going to get rules lawyered. People get excited when they know things and they can help you. And I wanted to make sure that especially, and this is partially my personality too, out of the gate, I wanted to limit the amount of pressureful things that were happening. So I wanted, honestly, people that had a little less experience than me so that I didn't feel intimidated by the knowledge and experience that other people had. And it's also a personality thing. I picked the people that are literally the two closest people to me because I knew that they would listen to what my goals were and and then be very respectful and supportive of that. So I was incredibly deliberate 
in the choice that I made. I didn't just gather up random people that were willing to play. I made sure that they were heavily vetted people that I trusted as the right players for what I needed. And also more importantly, the right people for what I needed to feel supported. That is a really good point because thinking back to some first sessions that I was a part of, there are some times that there are like excited, experienced players that are so helpful that they're really unhelpful. So either they're all trying to talk at the same time to let you know where the rule is in that book and how you should be doing it. And almost it can get to the point where they're almost backseat DMing and trying to do it for you. And it take again, there is a, it is very difficult for a lot of people for that restraint. You know, we talk about it to, to just bring up the martial arts, for example. If you're teaching a new instructor how to teach, they're going to stumble over their words. They're going to forget little details there. It's the same kind of pressure as teaching for the first time. So, you know, rather than jump in and save them every time, it's good to let them fumble a little bit. And if they have a question, they can ask like and it's a great lesson to learn to ask as a teacher of teachers, you know, especially in the dojo you spend a lot of time white knuckling it on the side because you so desperately want to jump in and because you can see how it could be better. And also, you know, you want to make sure it's a good experience for everyone involved. So yeah, there is a lot of restraint when you're the more experienced person watching a newbie practice and play because you're trying, you're striking this balance of letting them figure it out on their own while also making sure it's not a terrible experience. Um, you know, and obviously in the dojo, it's, you, you know, we're really trying to balance making sure the students are getting a quality experience because it's paid. So like if you're, you know, if you're training a new DM professionally in your place of business, you know, then it's it's definitely harder. But yeah, even casually, it's hard to white knuckle it on the side when you feel like you know better. But you always know better from the outside. And then you get into it and it's like, oh, this is a lot to juggle. <laughs> Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new, unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in Arc 3 of Advantage, a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app. So my frustration, which you talked a lot about in the rewards podcast that you did recently, the solo cast you did, um, was there were, there were like secret doors or treasure. Now treasure wasn't, the loot wasn't super important because we weren't looking to play a continuous game, but it was still there. And sometimes it was like a healing potion or something like that. And having to like make it happen that they would find the thing, like, especially if the secret door wasn't necessary, like positioning that, to make them even know that there were secret doors. Why would they know to look unless, you know, so there's a lot of nuance, I think, to how you 
describe stuff. Um, but then there's also, you know, if they know they're looking for something and then they fail their check, okay, so now we just do it again. You know, it's just awkward. It's really awkward. Um, and there's like a time thing, but I, there was something I, it was long enough ago that I don't remember the exact details, but there was something with like a jelly thing and they just like had to sit there and keep rolling until the thing happened because it required like, I, I don't know, it required a certain check or a certain DM role to activate it. But also the story couldn't progress unless that role was met. So now you're just like making stuff up. I don't know. It just, it, it felt clunky. So first of all, now you know why I don't like dungeon crawls. <laughs> and that is I a had that exact thought and actually even wrote it down in my notes of like, I wonder if this is why John doesn't like dungeon crawls. <laughs> yeah. And to go off the secret door point in the earlier, from my understanding of the earlier iterations of the game and like kind of the culture and agreements you'd make, it would be, I failed my check and I'm okay with that now. And we just move on. And I just don't think that's how people work. So one of the nice things about what happened when the community expanded is the game became a lot more human and a lot less that's the system and you need to learn to deal with it. But you, that's also the reason why when I'm going through these baby steps, you mentioned it, there's a gap in terms of products that can really help a GM learn these baby steps. Ice Spire Peak is actually a pretty good example of closing the loop. Um, another one I can think of is Candlekeep Mysteries. That's the module I'm running with my grandma and a small uh, group of family members. But most of the campaigns are actually geared toward uh, Baby Step 3. So, which is like a longer form ongoing thing where you're pausing in the middle and picking it back up. It's very difficult to be able to recommend products that actually help you close the loop inside of a single session. So baby step one was closing the loop. Uh, baby step two is testing a chain. And the reason I call it that is because just because you're lengthening the game time doesn't mean that there aren't loops. It's just that the loops are chained together. So when you're a DM, and even if it's a longer story that can't be captured in a single session, it's still looking at your story as like chapters. So what's going to be the beginning, middle, and end that's closed enough that your players can remember and reflect upon it, even though they'll have to remember details for the next session. A really good example of an official like product that Wizards put out that does this is Dragon Heist. Dragon Heist has four chapters. Chapter one is save a noble guy. Chapter two is discover the conspiracy. Chapter three is find the magic stone. Chapter four is different depending on who your main villain is. When I first ran that, and this is really what got me thinking about how a game's organization can help or hinder players remembering it, uh, when I ran Dragon Heist, it was one session per chapter and it was just a longer session. But by gosh darn it, by the end that session closed, that chapter was going to close because I knew if I let it drag on too long, that game would fizzle and eventually nobody would play. And what ended up happening is we would play a longer game, a longer chapter. Two or three months would go by before we could pick up the next chapter 
And still the players had forgotten everything that happened. But rather than picking up in the middle of things, there was like downtime in between the chapters. So yes, it was the same storyline, but the players had an easier time picking up a later chapter because it was the beginning of a new loop. So it's just that the loops were changed together. Stormwreck Isle sounds like very similar, maybe even smaller, because there's the initial like showing up at the island and you fight some zombies and then you like meet the people on the island. And then there's two intermediary chapters that you could take in either order, but they don't really relate to each other at all. And then you go off and you finish and there's the finale. So we did this one and this one actually, it's so like easily chunked that the first session we did uh, I used the characters from the box with a sidekick for balance because I had learned from the manticore. So we had, I had a party of four and, and then we had a huge gap. And then when we picked it back up again, it was just like a scheduling gap. Like that's life. Uh, so when we picked it back up again, I felt confident enough that I had them uh, make their own characters. And I actually didn't end up using the sidekick. It, it I felt pretty comfortable the other cool thing about Stormwreck Isle is there is like a pre-made character death slash TPK out so Runara saves you if you die you just if if they end up TPKing or, or a character dies then like they wake up back at the cloister and Runara saved them so it, it's kind of nice because it does give the DM that really easy out and the space to make the mistake of having something weird happened like on one of the the little missions on one of the quests in a session Michael accidentally like it was a two-part fight but Michael managed to activate the second part before they'd actually even started the first fight so they ended up with a lot like an overwhelm of too much going on uh and Leo's character ended up dying but it was fine because Runara saved him so I didn't have to worry about that as the DM within this close. So it's a it was a like a four chain, maybe five. If you threw in one of the little side quests they offered, it was a five loop chain. And it, you know, within that, I knew nothing disastrous was going to happen that was going to make it so we couldn't complete the chain. And it also didn't matter where we stopped because each chain, each link in the chain was a closed loop. Would we have gotten to, you know, the final thing that was hinted at? You know, maybe it would have been a little bit of a bummer if we didn't. But I, it was something where it was set up so that if it fell apart, I wasn't going to be devastated. My players weren't going to be devastated because we weren't that invested in it yet. I'm curious, how did your players feel about the fact that they could basically be saved if their characters die? Because I know that there is a pretty sizable portion of the TTRPG community where if they feel like their characters can be saved, they kind of feel like it doesn't matter. So I'm just curious, like, how they felt about it. It all came back to the human part of it, like the player human part of it, where I, I let them know what my goals were. It was more about them getting to support me than it was about them playing a character. So I, I made sure that I, I set our focus from the beginning um, and, and they were excited for me. 
So like we've had conversations with Michael about how like the kind of like grungy sort of, you know, risky campaigns that he he likes it when player characters could die. But he totally understood and respected the fact that this wasn't that kind of scenario. If this was not about playing D&D, this was about getting to help a friend learn how to DM. That's a different focus. And I made sure to set that out clearly in the beginning. And I made sure to pick, again, pick players that I could trust that when I was clear about what my goals were, they were going to support that. So I didn't put myself in a situation where I was going to have a grumpy player. Um, I I don't know that I'll ever want to put myself in that situation, but I definitely don't want to do it, you know, in the first 20 sessions that I run. So to come back to the the rename of the seven baby steps, like I said, the new name of step one, originally it was run a one shot, which again, it is kind of the same structure, but run a one shot didn't really explain the why as much as close a loop. So closing the loop is really like your first skill you're learning as a DM. Yeah, and where these can build on each other is both of the the things that I ran were designed to be multi-session campaigns. But at any point, I could have stopped. I think that's the important part is your chain. Even if you're starting with a chain in your very, uh, the potential for a chain in your very first session, it's a short chain. And if all you ever did with that group was session one, it's it would be okay. Everybody would feel like they were satisfied. It was pre-framed, like don't go too in depth with this character because you're you're not going deep in this chain. It's going to be a very surface level, me learning the mechanics and the dynamic of being a DM sort of thing. So it's it's creating satisfaction within each individual session. Correct. And the reason step two, I call it testing a chain is because a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So the idea being that, like you even said with Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, you're testing a chain to see if it'll fit everyone's schedule. So a lot of times what happens is everyone gets really excited about an in-depth world and story in their character, but they don't actually know if the scheduling reality is going to allow for that. So no matter how enthusiastic they are about something, a lot of times what happens is, you know, dance recitals come up, concerts, yada, yada, real world things that legitimately pull their attention away from the game and, and just lead to it fizzling. So you're testing a chain to see if the scheduling reality is going to allow for it. Um, and sometimes it doesn't. So the nice thing about a short chain is if you have a part one and a part two and there's a long time in between the two. After you resolve that part two, you go back to just going to closed loops. And also, it's okay if your game never moves beyond episodic closed loops. In fact, I would argue that's still what Gearus is, even though we talk about it uh, fulfilling all seven baby steps. Really, it's just a bunch of episodic closed loops. But my grandma's game that I mentioned earlier... At some point, I made it very clear with all of the players involved, just this is not going to go beyond episodic closed loops because we meet so infrequently. And I tested a chain with them too, with Lost Mine of Fandelver. 
And they just kept forgetting what had happened the session before so much that I'm like, hey, listen, it's not your fault <laughs> that you're forgetting things. We're meeting very infrequently. And because of that, this is the session structure I think we're going to have to default to. And once we all agreed to that, like the games just got more fun because we knew we wouldn't have to remember what's happening now, you know, six, eight, 12 weeks from now. Like I said, we had a huge gap between the first link of my chain and then the next four links of the chain. And it worked out, you know, which is, again, just emphasizing the importance of this. And then also by doing this chain linking as a first time DM, it also gave me the opportunity to reflect and evolve on my process. Um, so with Stormwreck Isle, I did feel like I felt more supported by the module to start to figure out how to prep like in my own style. So because there was more specific direction on like the NPCs and uh, there were less locations and stuff to worry about, it was a smaller map. Um, it made it easier. Definitely doing the Zettelkasten thing where I'm using index cards to help organize stuff. So that way I can kind of shuffle the cards around. So even in terms of prepping, there were two, you know, those two middle quests could have been taken in either order. I had both ready to go as like a little packet of index cards. And then I just take the chunk that I needed and, you know, and then it kind of walked me through, but I also wasn't being overwhelmed flipping through the book. I still use the book, but the, the cards helped me uh, focus in. And then actually by the last session, uh, so on Stormwreck Isle at the Cloister, there's Runara, and then there's like all these little kobolds, and there's and also two other humans. So there's like two humans, nine kobolds, and then Runara. So there, there's a lot of NPCs, and there was a lot of different ways that they could interact with them. And as we got farther in the chain, I started getting more excited about creating that interaction. And one thing that I did that helped all of us, actually, that my players even commented on how helpful it was, was I created just like little, I took an index card and cut it into four. So it's really small. I just put the N NPC's name and then like two or three identifiers because the, the module was like, oh, this one talks a lot and this one has insomnia and this one's a tinkerer. And, you know, so I took those things and I put them on the card. And then I actually drew out for the last session, I drew out the map of the cloister. And then I put the little cards where the people were. So even instead of just a mini figure, there was like this little shorthand reminder for all of us of who these people were. So we could reimburse into that character. Cause basically I had to be prepared. I actually didn't even think of it this way. Um, and any experienced DM is going to be like, duh, but I had to be prepared to role play one of 12 different characters and get into that personality. And I was also, I didn't have, it was a small chain. So I didn't have them all memorized. Some of them hadn't even been interacted with yet. So it just, it made it, that prep made it a whole lot easier to re-immerse into the characters. Um, and I did, it, there was a lot more role-playing in the last session and I started to feel really excited about trying to run it again because I felt like there was more I could have done in the earlier sessions. Um, and I actually, even in the, the last session, I set it up in a three-act structure like you do with Gears and Ian does with Corsara. Um, so the first, the first act was like 
social interactions to discover motivations and kind of plant the breadcrumbs that would point to the final battle. And then the exploration was using those motivations to have the conversation with the quest giver. And then there was a piece they had to go investigate. And then the final part was, oh, actually this was the the lead up to the final session because uh, we didn't have enough time to get the final battle in. So I threw in a side quest. So the third act of that session was travel and then a little side quest battle with an owl bear, which ended up being a little bit of a mistake. Um, <laughs> I think of it because it, it taxed their resources in a way that was not optimal going up to the final battle against the big bad guy. Um, so I did, because it was a chain and it was all about practice and play, after that owl bear side questy encounter, when we came back to do the final session with the big bad, I was like, just pretend you got a long rest because I don't want to I don't want to deal with it. I, the point of this game is not for you to be resource poor. The point of this game is for us to have fun and me to learn how to DM. And I did not set you, the choice I made did not set you up well for what was coming. So I made a meta pivot because it was appropriate to the goals of the game. The rules didn't matter as much as the experience at the table. Key thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to emphasize what you said about the cutting the note card in for before we started playing where we typed everything out in roll 20. I used to be so frustrated because, you know, there is there's this whole culture in a lot of circles right now where it's like, oh, you just need to be good at note taking. But I don't know how to spell half these names. It really helps to be able to visually read what a name is to be able to, for me to internalize who that character is rather than just trying to pronounce whatever the DM is saying and parroting it back to them. So that sounds very helpful for an at the table thing, just to, again, remember who these people are. That also just made me think uh, any effective organization often has a designated secretary for meetings because it is ridiculous to expect every single person in the meeting to take comprehensive notes of what's going on because that's not everyone's role. So as the DM, if you're the one prepping and having the notes, then what is the problem with having some sort of little like trigger? I'm not saying do all the work for the players, but just being like, hey, remember these five cobalts? I know you haven't interacted with them all as much, so you may only remember this one, but these other four guys, you know, just based on the downtime we'd have, you'd know these few basic things about them. Like give them that little bit of entry point. Like it's kind of like doing a recap at the start of a session. Um, and, and just it's ineffective to expect everyone to take perfect notes. So within reason, you can give your players those those little recaps and those little those little reminders. You already have the notes for you. Why not just share some of it? Like, you know, the, so Myla is a tinkerer and she's kind of grouchy. And as a winged kobold, her like wing is tore up, you know, and now that's going to trigger like, oh, yeah, I had a conversation with her and I learned this about why she's injured and can't fly anymore or whatever, you know, like give them those little trigger points so that they can remember and refocus on the information that's important because we're not we're not 
completely immersed. We can't, we're not having all the sensory experiences to remember all of the things and re-immerse when we come back to a session. Um, another thing that I did do, which is kind of a counter to that, was when I did the recap, especially for the last session, I asked my players questions to trigger them on the key things that they needed to remember. Um, and I had them remember what happened. And then if they didn't remember what happened, I let them know. Um, like I filled in the gap for them. But in a in a very respectful way, it wasn't about grilling them or making them feel bad if they didn't remember stuff. It was just like, all right, do you guys remember what you're doing? Do you remember who it was? Do you remember, you know, what advice they gave you? And then it got, it started getting their wheels turning and getting them into the mode of number one, uh, the immersion. And then number two, just speaking up and engaging. I have definitely shown up to tables before where my head was still on all the garbage that happened earlier in the day. And I, it would have been helpful to have a five minute recap conversation rather than just getting it dumped on me, having the pattern interrupt of someone being like, Hey, what do you remember from last time? What mattered to your character at the end of the last session? And then I'm like, Oh yeah, we did that thing. And then that funny joke happened. And then, you know, my character was, ticked off at this other person. And now I'm starting to think about the game rather than think about the work I didn't get done today or, you know, my kid being grouchy or the fact that, you know, my cat peed on something again, you know, like <laughs> I just got to get back, back into it. So help, help your players do that. And that's what I love to do with momentum learning systems is figuring out how to organize the content and set up the environment so that it's fun and engaging and you can just dive right into it. So that's that's definitely a part of the DMing experience that I'm enjoying playing with. And I think within Dragon Mind, we can we could probably come up with some pretty cool resources that that could help people. Yeah. So actually to go off of what you just mentioned about the environment and creating the conditions so it's easy to learn, to go back to the the baby steps as we're redefining them. You know, step one is closing the loop. Step two is testing a chain. Step three, which used to be run a closed campaign with a leveling progression. I'm just renaming it to lengthen the chain. It's the same kind of structural idea, but the idea is a lot of groups do enjoy the ongoing, longer form story. So once you test a chain or test a few chains and can confirm based on your players' decisions and actions that they can and will commit to the scheduling demands that a longer campaign has, then now you can actually run that longer form campaign. And I think one of the biggest changes uh, was actually step four, which rather than thinking of it as this is where you create your custom world, what I've changed it to is tending the garden in the larger loop. And it's exactly what you're saying. It comes back to restraint. I've actually seen this happen too, where a GM is running like a module, something that's set. And they do a really good job organizing the content, you know, running the combat. It's a really fun story. And then they're like, oh, I got it. The custom world of my dreams. And they go too big, too fast <laughs> and try to introduce too many NPCs and too many factions and 
all these countries and continents and all this stuff. And it's not about fire hosing. It's tending to the garden. So it's the right amount of water and sunlight shown on a flower to let it grow itself. You can't force a flower to grow just because you want it to. And I will say that the, this all started the tipping point of being like, ah, fine, I'll do it, was because a world started to build itself in my head. Uh, and I still, as a first, so as we're talking about this as a first time DM, it did come from the place of having a big creative idea. And I forced myself to do the work. And also, this is, it, it does lend itself to my personality as well. I wouldn't have wanted to dive in full bore. Um, I would have wanted to use the, the, I like building off of existing structures and then finding my creativity from that. Um, but I think this system was, you know, I think following the steps and then as a first time DM, having someone else give me the framework of the material the first time through the loops and through a chain and, and probably a couple more times before I'm ready to start tending the garden and introducing my own creative ideas. But it was actually, it was the thing that sparked it was the conversations about uh, race and versus species versus lineage. Um, and just thinking about how multiple intelligent sentient beings could evolve in a world and then interact with each other, you know, just thinking of it of, you know, where, where did all of these different species come from? And, and not just the fact that they exist in all their cultural lore, but like, how did it happen? You know, cause when you're talking about species, you're talking about biology. So how did that happen? And that started creating interesting questions. And then it, a world just kind of, started to to come out of it so i have the beginnings of a reference doc well and that's to when you're at this stage too at the tending to the garden i find that the structure of your game doesn't become longer than the length in the chain step step three um in fact it almost goes back to step one structurally so you have a custom world you have characters and villains with motivations and factions and all these things running around the way that you build the world in your player's mind is you have to plant the seeds and then tend to them so that they'll grow over time but you start that with closed loops you mentioned it last time but the way Gira started and this was very intentional is each session was kind of introducing a new region of the world. So there was one session that was about the nation of Belclair, and that's where like nobles and academics live. So it was just one session, one closed loop vignette of a story that just dealt with nobles and academics. There was another one about the Grand Zar Coast, what it's like and what the pirate factions are up to. But it kind of planted the seed of there's a there's a larger conflict that could be explored here, but our interaction is a closed loop. And it's also to test what the players are interested in. Players weren't interested in, oh, let's go see what the pirate lords are up to. Nor did I necessarily want them to be. So I really do think that the self-sabotage for a lot of games is just expectations. So I expect that my players will want to do this thing. I expect that if my world is interesting enough, my game is interesting. So it's trying to shed the expectations to be open 
for what your players want. And a lot of times your players' ideas are better than yours to begin with. There's a quote soundtrack that I love that says all frustration comes from unmet expectations because you wouldn't be frustrated if you weren't expecting it to happen. But if you were expecting something to happen and then something else happened or it didn't happen, that's where the frustration comes in. You're expecting your kid to behave in the restaurant and then they don't. And it's super frustrating that you can't just sit there and eat their meal. Maybe if they're a year old, you should expect a 50% chance you're going to end up out in the parking lot while they kick and scream because they're a toddler, you know? And if you expect that your game is going to run perfectly and your players are going to love the the big bad and the story that you present to them, you know, then you're going to feel really frustrated if they don't care. But if you go in with the expectation that you're going to have to set a compass and, and help them learn why it matters, help them enmesh in the story and that it's going to be a dialogue of conversational learning. You know, if that, if your expectation is that you're, it's going to be something that you create together and a path that somewhat reveals itself over time, that maybe you have a, a direction you want to go, but you understand that the details are going to evolve as your players contribute. If that's your expectation, now there's going to be a lot less frustration. Actually, because one of the things I've been thinking of, if you hear close the loop, you kind of have an idea. But what is the loop? And I really think the loop is pretty simple. It's test and discover. So you're using the loop to test something out, test what it's like to be a DM, kind of like an experiment. You have to just kind of know what you're testing for. So I'm testing what it's like to be a DM. I'm testing what my players are interested in. I'm testing out a part of my world. And then you're discovering how well it goes, which informs the next test. I think a loop from a story perspective is making sure all the questions are answered and that, you know, any character, I'm trying to think of how to say it without using the word loop, but any, any, anything that gets opened with a character, like everybody's safe, you know, there's no one that needs to, there's no one in danger that needs saving there's no questions out there that are unanswered. So like the very first session I ran, it was go help the healer lady who lives at the windmill because I don't know, I don't even remember. It was like, you hadn't heard from her in a while or something. And it turns out that there was a man. Oh no, it's because there's a dragon, right? So there's a dragon flying around. That's kind of the premise of, uh, of Ice Fire Peak. Uh, so you have to go warn her about the dragon. So it's literally just warn her about the dragon. When you get there, there's a manticore. Oh no, you deal with the manticore. You tell the lady what she needs to know. You return to town and get your gold. Closed loop. It's done. There's no extra questions. Is there more? Could you could you go back and talk to that lady again? Is that whole dragon thing resolved? No, but we didn't really open any loops with the dragon thing. It was just a thing. That happened. That it was a a constant in the world at that point. So it wasn't some big unanswered question. the The questions that were opened were closed. We took care of business. We checked all the boxes. We can go home now and we can rest easy. Yeah, actually, step four is also once you get good at closing loops. I almost kind of wonder if there's like a four A and a four B when you're thinking of step four, because I can't think of another step where it's appropriate to put this. It actually comes back to something you just mentioned, which is in a lot of TV writing, there's an episodic plot and an overarching plot. And a lot of games think mostly about an overarching plot. But what we're advocating for is also having an episodic plot. 
So The Office is a great example where in a given episode, there's diversity day, right? So there's there's that closed story loop very early on. The overarching loop that gets you coming back is what's happening with Jim and Pam. But you're just touching on it. There's some unanswered questions of what's going to happen. But like you said, there's no nothing immediate that hasn't been resolved. So the idea with with like kind of like step four B, like when you get good, like your players are responding well to your world. You've tested some things. You've discovered that they love it is you do have the closed plot save the lady from the manticore. But there is that unanswered question of what is the dragon up to? But the dragon's not presenting an immediate threat. It's just, what is it up to? We don't know. We'll find out next time. But you still have a closed loop you can look back on. I get really frustrated with TV shows when they they start out being interesting because they're 80% or 90% closing a loop within an episode. Um, something like House you know, or blacklist. I used to love blacklist. They dealt with one blacklister criminal per episode. And there was a bet. There was like 30 to five to 40% of the plot was kind of this, this kind of back, maybe less than that. I don't know, but there was a background thing, but I also had these really nice little closed loops that were being taken care of. And I, I stopped I, I don't even know what season they're on. They're on like season 10 or 11 or something. And I stopped somewhere between eight and nine just because it was so much about just this ongoing stuff. Like they just kept opening more loops and every one of the reoccurring characters had some sort of like dramatic, tragic thing that they were dealing with that was just getting worse every episode there were so they were running multiple consecutive loops and it was just it was too much it wasn't fun anymore because it was more about creating tension and drama than it was about closing the loop and making you feel good about it it's television it's supposed to be relaxing and there's an element of that to D as well where people should feel excited there should be that piece that points forward to the next session but at the same time if nothing gets resolved that creates stress just within our human brains if we just constantly have all of these open loops that we're trying to track david allen's getting things done like the productivity guru guy it's all about closing loops making sure that your system supports and tracks all of the things that you need to do so the right information shows up at the right time because our brain will stay stuck on the open loop until it gets closed so if you never if you never bring your players to satisfaction they're gonna start to get frustrated yes actually on what you just said the seven baby steps is largely to answer the question how do you keep a game from fizzling How do you structure a game in a way where let's say it does end early and that's really disappointing. You didn't see the story through. How do you still look back on it positively and don't look at it as a storytelling failure? And baby step one is you just finish the story in the same session so that if our group only gets to meet once, well, we can still look back and hey, remember that one time we played that game and it was really fun rather than, oh yeah, we left that open loop. It's It's a shame that that game fizzled. Yeah, Um, another fizzled game, you know, like just adding to the pile, you know, that kind of you avoid that kind of attitude. Now, having played in a lot of ongoing games that have both closed and fizzled, 
one of the things comes back to what you said about the stress of our human brain. But what I would get frustrated by is a lack of a sense of progress. So what a closed loop does, if you've got closed loops, even if there's an ongoing story where you're slowly discovering more and more about a larger plot, is that it lets you know you're still getting things done by showing up to the session. So as a broader thing, not only does a closed loop session help organize it so it's easier to remember, but it makes each and every session feel worthwhile. I know immediately that a campaign is doomed to die. And even if it completes, like it's not one we'll look back on where we're like, that was awesome. Because when you miss a session and you come back and you ask, what did I miss? And the answer is we spent two hours talking to an NPC. It doesn't feel like the time is being spent worthwhile. The reason why the closed loop is so strong is it makes you feel like every single session you show up to matters. And if you miss, it hurts, not because you're missing out on the larger plot, but because you missed out on the fun of closing another loop. It feels kind of incomplete. Those are kind of my thoughts right now on step four, planting the seeds, but also playing with closed loop plots with 5% development each session of a larger overall plot. The last three baby steps conceptually are largely unchanged. The language has just been shifted a little. Step five was cultivate a particular culture. The only thing I added was intentionally. The only difference between step five and step four is that you're very intentioned about the kind of culture that you want to see at your table. So again, you're taking baby steps, you're planting seeds and teaching your players over time how to embody the culture that you want for your game. And that goes back to resetting the compass that we talked about when we were talking about momentum learning systems. Because like I said, my when I first uh, set up the two little games that I played, the two little chains that I played, I pre-framed my players and they were very patient and, you know, had fun with it, all that kind of thing. And then one of them in both games was my son, Leo. And at first he was really excited to support and engage. Um, he's not as in love with the slow pace of D&D, like slow compared to video games, um, <laughs> as as I would like him to be. Uh, we'll get there maybe. But uh, so he started by the last couple sessions, he started to get a little bit loopy. Um, so it, I had, there was, there's planting the seed, but then you have to, I like the word cultivate because you have to keep working to help nudge people in the right direction. People may agree. So Let's say in Gearis, you established from the beginning that everything was going to be written. And then if you had had a player that was starting to do more things out loud than they were typing it in the chat, you have to you have to cultivate that culture to a degree. Or if it's things that we're doing where we're engaging in in-betweens, some people may need a little bit more nurturing into that and then if they're not willing to engage with it then it's a matter of deciding whether or not they should continue playing but as the dm you can't just be like all right my rules are we write everything and you participate in the in-betweens that's not realistic you're going to have to continue to cultivate those things you're going to need to encourage people you're going to need to nudge people in a direction if they start to drift off course like there are definitely times where we have out loud conversations 
as we're trying to figure out, like understand the situation. And then there are times where you'll type in the chat, you know, what someone said out loud they were doing. There's other times where you'll say, hey, can you type that in the chat? And we're like, oh, oh, yeah. You know, and that's part of cultivating the culture. If you just let it go, you, you get what you tolerate. If there are people that are behaving in a way that doesn't match your culture and you don't do anything to, to nip that, it's going to start to move in a direction you don't want it to go. So it's constantly tending to the garden and moving things in the direction that you want them to go. So like, like putting the pole on the plant so it grows straight. I don't garden, but I know you you do that sometimes. Like are the little cages for the tomato plants to help them grow tall. Yeah, all right, this is going to sound harsh and the what I'm thinking isn't as harsh as it sounds, but also it's like weeding. So like you've got to remove some weeds to allow the space for the plants that you want to grow. And that isn't to say you need to weed out your players or anything, but it's like Ken said, it's it's nudging back to alignment with what the compass is. Another much harsher than it needs to be uh, or should be uh, founder of the system that we train, Fred Villari, and then also our, our teacher, John Fritz. John would talk about how he learned from Fred just the idea of having this energy of like violence is never off the table when you're in a, like a negotiation or, or something like that. So just having that commanding presence of like, this could devolve if it needs to, you know? And, and so obviously don't get not saying have an energy that you might get violent with your players at some point, but just that energy of like, you don't have to play if you don't like it, you know, you, you can opt out at any time. So it's not like you're bending over backwards to please your players. It's like, look, I, I want you to play with us, but if you don't like the way that we're playing, it's cool if you need to move on and find a different table. So just that willingness to let people go is going to help cultivate and direct the culture because they understand that you're dedicated to serving the majority. And if there's an outlier that needs to be weeded out, you're willing to do that. And not even serving the majority, serving the the highest possible game that you're able and excited to deliver. I The reason I say it like that is I, I just remember a conversation with Joe from Advantage and what they were saying was, advantage that the cast is four players it's the four players they could trust to manifest the game that they wanted and so sometimes like equester's way we had like 30 people we, that could have been part of this game but sometimes you're not serving the 26 you're serving the four because those are the players that are aligning with your values and aligning with the game that you know that you as a dm can deliver for them that is going to be so much greater than if you were trying to accommodate the other 26. I absolutely agree. And I was thinking about saying principles and at the same time, if the principles that you choose the game you want to play, nobody else wants to play, then you don't get to play. So there's a point of there's, there's this balance, this dichotomy of figuring out what game you want to play in service to others you know so it's not just all about you you're thinking about how you know looking at the game you want to play the types of people you like playing with which means they probably align with you 
to some degree if you like playing with them. And then how can you best serve the majority? Meaning like you like if it were like a company, like you'd own 50% of the stock, you know? <laughs> so it needs to match what you're looking to do. But then if if you literally can't find anyone else to play with you based on the principles and the your version of like a, you know, a higher game or whatever, you know, then then the, the problem's you. <laughs> you know, like you have to you're gonna have to make an adjustment. So it is absolutely a both and and I'm glad you made that clarification. And the other thing I want to acknowledge is that it's hard. Like having a player in your game and coming to the agreement that the game or the table or the group isn't a good fit, it hurts. And it feels like a, a spiral down. And my experience is that it ends up as a spiral up. Again, if if somebody isn't a good fit, it's unfair to both you and it's unfair to them to try to keep mashing them in when it's agreed upon that it just isn't working out. And that's why it is so important to make sure that you have closed loops and chains, even when you're running a multi-year campaign. If you make sure that every once in a while, like the way that gear it, not to be like Gears is the best thing in the world but there's a lot of thought that went into it and there are there are closed there are times where we close loops within a session and then there's also seasons like books that are like 10 to 12 sessions kind of you know all put together basically there are off ramps so if you never close a loop no one can ever leave because they're going to mess up the story there's things they never finish but if you make sure that there are break points there are ends to your season where there's still something to look forward to but for the most part everything's kind of settled that's your opportunity to hit a reset button so create opportunities for yourself to off-ramp a player if necessary or for a player to off-ramp a character that is no longer interesting to them. Because if their player is constantly immersed in the story, then they never get a chance to to move out. And obviously, you know, I've, I've heard of plenty of ways that people do this within campaigns where they'll close one character's loop while everything else is still going. Um, but it's just good to provide those moments of little like respite where swaps can be made, whether it's character or player. To come back to it, you're intentionally cultivating a particular culture. Step six, which was, you know, play with homebrew is really just tune the system. And the reason I changed it to that is because it might be a lot of homebrew. It might be a little, but it's like a radio dial. You're tuning in to get the best sound. And sometimes what you're tuning isn't the homebrew or the rules, it's the structure. So again, with Gearis, we found that the ideal structure, given the scheduling realities of all of the players involved, for the most part, closed loops, like step baby step one level closed loops. Every now and again, we have like a two-parter or a chain where you know, we close one loop, but then it turns out there's a giant robot over there that's destroying the city. And that's a cliffhanger at the end of a session. So to me, that would be like, that would be a chain. So you're tuning the system so that the the song of your game is as clear and beautiful as it can be. And then the last one is just fostering empowerment. How we identified it during our first foray into the seven baby steps was like you experienced being so inspired that 
by your experiences with TTRPGs that you want to game master yourself and create your own worlds and your own story and be your own leader at the table. Your players taking ownership over their character's story. This is what we're talking about with in-betweens. So you're so excited to play your character. You can't wait for the next session. So you start putting side quests or internal reflections yourself to start deepening your immersion of the game's world, even when you're not all together. I am sure there are other ways that empowerment can appear at the table. Um, Another one might just be that you're playing a character and you're discovering that it's helping you resolve something in your regular life as serious or silly as you want it to be. So just the idea is that once you get really in tune with your table, their culture, your game, there are all these empowerment possibilities that come out of it. And that's why the slogan for Dragon Mind, I'm changing it from discovering your best self through gaming to designing the game to discover your best self through gaming. Because again, this isn't accidental. This is intentional practices that tend to yield these unpredictable results. Yeah, I'd keep workshopping that tagline. Oh, I very, again, you know, yeah. it's been a year. We we changed it. There's there's like designing the game. You're saying game twice, but I don't know. It's it's just, that's where my head's at right now. Yeah, no, I like the idea. I think it's just a matter of making it roll off the tongue a little better. So to wrap up and summarize the broader baby steps or the revised baby steps again, step one is close the loop. Step two is test a chain. Step three is lengthen that chain. Step four is tend the garden in the loop. Step five is intentionally cultivate a particular culture. Step six is to tune the system. And step seven is to foster empowerment. Now, we spent some time talking about your journey as a newer game master, Stephanie. If you're an experienced game master, I really do think one of the biggest takeaways you can have is giving yourself permission to use the structure that's going to best match your table. There are a lot of players with very busy lives that can't commit to an ongoing game. That doesn't mean they can't have a consistent character in the world that just participates in closed loop adventures in various parts of your world. They don't need an ongoing story arc and huge transformation but that doesn't mean that excludes their participation. There are other players that might be more available and more into it. For those players, now you can use different lengths of chains in order to help them get what they want out of the game. So even after you've learned how to successfully do the first three structures, loop, chain, longer chain, once you're starting to hit step four, step five, and step six, It's more the mindset you're going into in choosing the structure that makes sense. And especially if you're playing with a new player or a new configuration of players or anything like that, it's always best to start with a closed loop just in case something goes wrong or you need to create an off-ramp for a player or they want an off-ramp for their character. It creates those cleaner breaks in between that allows your game to best express itself. As I was reflecting on your your seven baby steps as we were leading up to this um there is some this is all about barring brilliance and in the end everything everything integrates together and truth is truth uh so momentum learning systems is our consulting company 
Um, if Momentum Learning is an EV, uh, Village Muse, which is another company that we formed with a team of five of us, is like a Flareon. So it's it's basically an evolution that grows out of Momentum Learning Systems. It's a it's a company that does consulting on a, a more comprehensive scale for businesses and solopreneurs than what we do in momentum learning. Um, and it also has the potential to turn into partnerships. Um, but here are our three main phases of what we do to help companies figure out how to move, you know, how to grow their, their business or how to expand their business. Cause really it's the people that are, that have a really awesome human-centric product that want to reach more people. We help them expand that impact. So phase one is value clarification. We get them to identify a minimum viable product. So that would be like a test class, like a closed loop. And then we help them define the scope of work. So get a picture of what the potential is and start to understand what that actually means. And then we also, um, within that phase of value clarification, we're also looking at, you know, um, outreach explorations and, and referral programs, which doesn't quite correlate as closely to this. But that first phase is those first three baby steps of clarifying value and kind of creating some definition of what it is, what it means to be a DM, what it means to tell a good story, what it means to, to close a loop, like make sure you can do it. And that's the thing that we've been talking about. We have one client that we're working with right now that's got a lot of potential to benefit a lot of lives. And they're really excited about working with 250,000 veterans. And we're like, have you done a class of 25? And they're like, but we could do all of this. And it's like, well, that's great. And I want to see you impact a quarter million lives. But can you teach a class of 25? Can you close one loop? in your game because you can't run a multi-year campaign if you can't close the loop. So that's kind of that first stage. And then the second phase, which is really where the, the full team of Village Muse comes in, is the potential for scale. So that's where we're starting to look a little closer at the systems and the team configuration. So who do you need on the bus to make sure that things are successful? Uh, really clarifying like details like should you should you be an LLC or should you be a an S corp or a C corp you know or a benefits corp there's multiple options do you want to run a campaign that's built off of modules or off of worlds that you know the D&D world or the Pathfinder world you know or how do you want to use somebody else's do you, are you creating your own world what does that system look like and then the third phase is creating a legacy so that's where you're building your culture, uh, you're creating navigational systems, and you're you're building a flywheel that's going to keep that momentum going. And that's where you're thinking about really starting to to tune the system and and foster empowerment so that it continues beyond you. Because there's so many solopreneurs that run keystone businesses. If that person wants to retire, or if something happens to them, the business is gone because it's all centered on that one person. So if you're the only person that can run an awesome game, now you're stuck as the forever DM until, and if you decide to stop, then that friend group, you know, that, that social group, at least in that context 
fizzles. So creating a legacy is where you're creating that empowerment so that other people want to DM. So now it's not, the pressure's not all on you. And there, there's a manifestation, you know, or a continuation that can happen where if you decide that you can't invest the time in DMing anymore, someone else in your group is like, you know what, I, I want to give it a go. And now you can show up once a week with your character sheet or once every other week. And, and that's all you have to do. And the game continues and the social group continues. The table continues because you've created a legacy in your culture. So it's just interesting how these two things correlated exactly. And that to me, when something integrates like that, it, it really demonstrates that there's a, a truth to it because if it works, if it works in Dungeons and Dragons and it works in business and it works in, you know, it works in multiple industries, whatever it works in terms of growing yourself as a human, that's when you know it's, it's true when it resonates on multiple levels in multiple situations. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Our theme song, The Lounge, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Last but not least, to support this podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review in your app of choice. It's a little thing that goes a long way. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. I think the core of Dungeons & Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully, Dungeon Master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll a 5th edition actual play podcast of micro-campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table. How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts.